Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Phil Taub and Dave Tilly. Hi, this is Phil Taub and David Tilly. We're back with another awesome Homeland Heroes Salute. And our guest today is retired Navy SEAL Jose Artero, a good friend of mine who we'll get to meet a number of years ago, his lovely wife Wally. And uh, we've been fortunate to have them as our guests up at Swim of the Mission uh, and down at the museum, the Navy SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida. Jose, uh, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Phil. So, Jose, we're going to just jump right into this because, you know, for most folks, you know, when we interview a Navy SEAL, you know, the story is really about their career. But, you know, you have this fascinating sort of backstory as to how you made it, you know, to BUDS. And I want to take a little bit of time and and go through this. And you and I figured out that I think in the late 80s, we were kind of hanging around Faneuil Hall, you know, I think at the same time in Boston, which is also cool, right? Because I, I immigrated to, to the United States uh, from Africa, in my case, uh, in 1986. But Take us all the way back to the beginning, you know, uh, tell us where you were born and what your parents were doing. And, you know, let's start there. Sure. Uh, ironically, there's a lot of parallelism on our lives up to our uh, uh, late teenagers. And uh, I thought that was that was pretty amazing. But um, uh, so born in St. Paul, Minnesota and uh, and uh, parents, both Portuguese. Uh, and when I mean Portuguese, they're literally Portuguese natives. My dad was an exchange student in uh, University of Hamlin in uh, Minnesota, in St. Paul. And my mom came along. She a uh, mother of three. So is my, my sister. She's about four and a half years older than me. My brother, two years older than me. And then um, I was born in the United States. And um, it was just um, I was just a few months old and we had tragedy hit the family. And uh, my my older brother, two year old, was um, was run over by a car and uh, and we lost him. And um, so that kind of that kind of set the set the pace for the family to just pack the pack up, pack up and and leave and go back to Portugal homeland to uh to lisbon and um because my dad had done his military time in africa in angola which was at the time a portuguese colony um several of these contacts reached out and uh basically asked him if he would be uh interested in going back to angola and and work there so um his background was uh manufacturing engineering so he went down to angola to work for Suzuki, for the motorcycle company. So uh, we moved to what was at the time uh, uh, New Lisbon. The name of the town was New Lisbon at the town time. It's now called Chitato. It changed with the with the revolution. But um, so we lived there for about six years and just totally amazing memories growing up in Africa. Um, just being around all the natives and doing the things with the natives and. And uh, a, a lot of just pushing carts around and playing, you know, cowboys and Indians, kind of like all the other kids around, but just spending a lot of time out in in the jungle too. And 
and doing a lot of fun things with the parents from hunting safaris and and just being out in in <laughs> in the woods if you if you if you call um then we will change the my dad changed jobs went to luanda which is the capital and uh we lived there for a couple more years before 1975 when the war started there and uh basically portugal used to be um, a fascist country and a fascist government and uh the the, with the uh, revolution, they decided that, you know, all it was time to end the fascist government, to end all the colonies, to give freedom to all the colonies that were remaining. And overnight, they basically handed over uh, the colonies to the people of those countries without setting a, a government in place, which basically triggered the civil war. And as citizens of Angola, you know, we got caught in the middle of, of the war and um, quite a bit of memories right from those ages. You know, I was nine years old. Um, give you a little episode where um, as soon as the war started, my dad wanted to go back to the factory and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, wanted to go and pick up some very important documents from the factory. And uh, he was concerned that by him going alone as a man that he would be, um, you know, kind of spotted out and something bad would happen to him. So we decided to go as a family where I would go in the car with my mom and he would go in another car and we'd just caravan to um, to the factory. And um, I clearly remember um, as we going up a hill, we see this guy waving from the top, you know, waving with a gun in his hand. And, you know, we all stopped and we start turning around. And before you know it, you had all these uh, all these gorilla guys just jumping out of the jungle and right on top of us at gunpoint and screaming at us, getting us out of the car. And uh, and of course, you know, me being the kid, that's where they focused on because they figured if these parents or these people are dumb enough for anything, he's probably to hide guns with a kid. So, uh <laughs> they stripped me down with my mom completely hysterical and, and, uh, long story short, uh, long story short, I basically, we came out of it unescaped, nothing happened to us, but it, it, it was a pretty scary. And, uh, it was a situation that I'll never forget. Um, ended up getting back home. Uh, maybe, uh, within a few weeks, we had somebody knocking at our door and, and uh, my mom went to the door and, uh, and there's a, a, a couple of people at the door that basically asked for uh, Jose. We were looking for a gentleman called Jose Artero. And my mom is like, oh, that's my son. And uh, she's like, well, we're at the American Red Cross and uh, Jose Artero is a US citizen. So we're here to evacuate him from the country. Uh, him and any direct siblings, you know, uh, any children and, and women. And so that's how I ended up leaving the war with my mom. And uh, my dad had to stay behind and I didn't see him for another two years. Uh, I'll pause there if you want to ask any question right now. That, that's that's just in, incredible. And and at that point in time, most of the most of your life, you were raised and also spoke Portuguese, right? 
Yeah. E- so even when they even when they came to see you, because your your time in the U.S., you were so young at that time when you returned to Portugal. Yeah, and it's actually been the irony all along. Uh, my sister actually has a better American accent than I do, and she actually speaks better English than I do because she was older than I was when we left United States. And um, and and you're absolutely right. My my only language at the time was really. Uh, uh, Portuguese and the English that my parents tried to speak at home with me. And and your born citizenship, really, in a lot of ways, do you feel, did it end up rescuing you in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. Me and my mom. So yeah. uh, when you think about it, because it was American Red Cross, they came, they came for me, but they came for me because of yeah. being an American citizen. So uh, absolutely. Wow. Wow. That's a, yeah. that's amazing. And kudos to my mom because my mom always, it was one of the things that my mom always uh, took a lot of pride in was ensuring that I preserve my U S citizenship. So she always maintained my American passport. She always registered me in every embassy, wherever we went. So um, she actually worked for the British and for the U S embassy when we were in Angola. So, um, so a lot of credit to her for uh for keeping me you know uh registered and and basically ended up getting us out of the country at that time what a blessing how did how did it end up uh finally linking up back with your dad so uh that's actually a very interesting story to you guys are gonna like this one so so my dad was part of uh essential crew so because he was the manufacturer engineer for the motorcycle and bicycle st- you know, factory, they, they would not let him leave. So, uh, they, they were not paying him. Of course they were rationing, uh, they were rationing all the food that he would get and they would ration all the fuel that he would get as well so that he wouldn't basically go astray. And they stole the, took away all his documents so that he basically couldn't leave. Now, what he started doing was he actually got a thermos and every day he would go to work. He started filling up this thermos with paint thinner. And uh, and he little by little started filling up jerry cans with paint thinner on his when he got back home. And uh, he started working on fake papers and start working on his way to basically escape the country. And um, and uh, two years later, after he put together his plan and figured he had enough uh, enough paint thinner to get him across the border and to basically drive his car on paint thinner across the border. He basically executed his plan. He uh, went for the border, drove his car as hard as he could for as long as he could before he froze the engine. And then uh, he made it to the neighboring country to the south with the goal of going down to South Africa out of all places. And uh, he, uh, of course, his engine block ended up freezing, you know, getting melted basically with the overheating of burning a different kind of fuel such as paint thinner. And um, he hitchhiked his way and he made his way up to Cape Town in South Africa and no documents, no money, no nothing, literally just on the side of the street, sitting on, on, on the curb some man just put a hand over his shoulder and basically said Mario. And he looked up and was one of his clients. And uh, 
basically he took him to the Portuguese embassy where he, he testified that he, he was in fact the person he was saying he was. And he, they contacted, you know, the, the Portuguese government, they got him, they paid him to get, get in a ship and got him on a ship back home. And that's, that's how he made it home. Oh my God. That's an incredible, incredible story yeah. that he's, that he survived through that. And, and, uh, and the, uh, creativity on, on using a uh, paint thinner in the, and the thermos, I was going to ask about that with high gas prices. Should I go down to my basement and throw some <laughs> paint thinner in the tank? You know? Not recommended. <laughs> not recommended. <laughs> Didn't take him very long, just long enough, but not not too long. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. Amazing Dave, story. Yeah, Dave, so Jose and I, our lives are a little intertwined at this yeah. point because – I was born at roughly the same time in uh, Rhodesia, which later became Zimbabwe. And similar to Angola, Rhodesia, which was British, not Portuguese, you know, um, the Ian Smith government seceded from, from Britain and then proceeded to fight a civil war. Uh, and things got pretty, pretty bad there. And so we left, uh, we had British citizenship, but they, um, you know, they, they were basically we were banned from all Commonwealth countries. So you couldn't go to Canada or, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, et cetera. So South Africa was the only place that would take us. So we we started in Cape Town and it was probably around the time that Jose's dad was there and then uh, made our way up to Durban before uh, I made it to America in 1986 to Boston, uh, which is had been the plan all along. It just took an extra 15 years. Uh, but so, so Jose, tell us about your journey from Angola. I think back to Portugal first, yep. right? And to America. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I was just on my last year in in uh, elementary school when we went back to Portugal. Uh, so we moved in with my grandparents in Lisbon, and uh, my whole family was was from Lisbon. So it was you know reacquainted with all my cousins and everything. But uh, one thing it stands or sticks to me in, in my mind is how, you know, number one, how I spoke, even though I spoke Portuguese, it was kind of like, like a pigeon Portuguese. So I really stood out compared to all the kids. Uh, and, and you got to remember, like my family, it were thousands and thousands and thousands of us that were basically refugees, you know, back into the country. So, uh, it, it, it stands in my mind just seeing people living in tents and crowded streets. I mean, like literally, you know, tent city everywhere. And, uh, and I remember this, this animosity almost towards us because especially even the kids, I noticed that because um, the kids must have struggled or the kids must have seen the parents going home and struggling because there were so many new people coming in. So you had all these cheap labor coming because everybody was looking for, you know, you know, they would want a job doing anything just to put food on the table. So uh, it became a threat to a lot of the people that lived in the country. And I'm sure the kids at the table would hear that. And then I would be playing with these kids and the kids look at me kind of like, Hey, you one of these people that just came in here are really messing up our whole economy and our whole people and our whole way of life. 
And, um, and I really, I, I indirectly, I got a, a strong vibe of not being wanted around. Right. And, um, that really impacted my life. And, and as being Portuguese yourself, just, uh, in a, in a different country and then picking up a different, uh, really dialect and then coming home. Not just dialect, culture. The whole culture, culture was yeah. different. I mean, uh, it, it, sure. you know, even even racism. To be honest with you, that I was, you know, in, when I lived in Africa, all my friends were were colored people, and they were my like my brothers and my sisters, and and it was a big family. And in being back in 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 Portugal, it was like in conjunction with everything else that was happening. There was this animosity towards African people because, again, they were stealing their jobs and they were doing. It, it, it was just, it was just a very awkward feeling. Wow, and and so when you were back in in Lisbon, though, there were ten cities at that time. Oh yeah, everywhere, wow. the whole city, every uh, around the whole country. Because again, you got to remember, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people that came from sure. from the colonies. And they didn't, they weren't fortunate like we were that we had our, you know, my mom's parents were in the city. So we were able to move in with them. So it was like, you know, maybe six people in a two bedroom house, but at least we had a house. Most people didn't have a house. And Lisbon today's a, a beautiful city. Well, it, yeah. it, it is. Yes, it mm. is. The other thing I remember is, um, so when I grew up in Africa, yeah. It, it wasn't like in Europe playing soccer. It's it's a huge thing. In uh, in Africa, you know, playing out, you know, just going out with slingshots and riding bicycles. That's that's our thing. You know, we didn't really do the soccer thing. So when when I started going into middle school and high school and all these kids, it, there, there's it, it's a fever. I mean, everybody's playing soccer. So I remember I would. You know, right in middle school, I would try to blend in and try to play soccer with the kids. And I, it, it just didn't happen. I didn't have the skill that these kids had that they had since, you know, they were like two, three years old with a soccer ball at their feet. And that was very obvious. So, again, I was segregated. And, and again, that was a big, a big thing in my life because, because it also set another part of my – it also made who I am today because – I had to find a, a, an alternate activity. And what I started playing is I started playing rugby and, and that really built uh, a lot of, you know, exercising and toughness and discipline that later on helped me in life. So um, it, it, it's funny how things happen in, and, and they happen for a reason, you know, they, they happen, they help, they help you mold into who you are and who you become in the future. Yeah. So, so your journey back to talk a little bit about your journey back to the United States from, uh, from, from departing Portugal. Yeah, sure. So uh, graduated high school and I'm, there's a transition here that I really got to yeah. talk about because it, it, it was also sure. pretty, uh, pretty interesting. So um, graduated high school and uh, uh, one other thing that I did a lot in high school was I did a lot of surfing. And if you haven't been in Portugal in the surf, it's like being in California water. It's frigid. Mm -hmm. So that too helped me 
going forward on my career. But, uh, but when I graduated high school, I had, I wanted to go to college now college in Portugal. Uh, and I think it's, it's not as much now as it was before, but back in those days, it was like college was free. There was no private, private universities. So it was, you would go to college and you'd go to college free, but you'd go to college free by merit. And what I mean by merit is you have the grades, you go to college. We pay for you to go to college. If you don't have the grades and the grades were from zero to 20, there was the scale. And for you to be accepted to go to college without paying for college, it was your grades had to be anywhere ranging between 17 and a half, 18 and over. So, I mean, you were like in the top A, per, a highest percentage to be able to, to be accepted to go to college. And I was nowhere near that. I mean, I, my average was like a 12. So I was a C plus average. Now, one thing the government did that was very interesting was every year that you did not make it to college because you did not have the average needed to make it to go to college, they bumped up, like, let's say the average three, four points. So if I look down the line, I knew that three years from now, I should probably get accepted because my average would bump up to about 17, 18, and I would make the cut to go to college. However, I would also have the issue of I'm going to get 18 to 18, and I'm going to be drafted because the military is mandatory in Portugal. So I had that whole situation going on for me. So I was like, I can't make it to college. I'm very likely going to get drafted. But guess what? I am an American citizen. So why don't I just try my luck in the United States and see what happens? And, you know, figured I got to get money. And that was the one step, the one thing that I wanted to talk about real quick. That was my transition come to United States was kind of like, where do I make the money or where do I get the money to go to United States? Because I had no means of, um, you know, my parents had no means to pay for me. So uh, that's basically when I took, uh, took a trip with some friends, hitchhiked my way into Denmark. And uh, I was supposed to go down to Denmark and, and watch a concert to begin with. But then my goal was to, uh, to work down there with uh, some Israeli guys that I had met, just basically selling jewelry. Uh, these guys would make handcraft jewelry and they would go in on streets and like they would be like selling uh, on a, they would have like an open box and they would sit on the side of the street and selling jewelry. And, and I helped them out doing that in very uh, popular tourist areas. And I was making like, to be honest with you, this is 1985 and I was making a hundred bucks a day and uh Worked for the whole summer in Denmark, in, in Copenhagen, and um, flew back home at the end of the summer. Um, gave the money to my mom, asked her to buy me a ticket, and got a ticket to fly into Boston. And uh, at the time, I had my sister as an exchange student in Brunswick, going to Bowdoin College. And I went to meet my sister in Bowdoin College. So that's how I came to the United States. It's amazing. 
and 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 you stayed right right from there yeah so so i had no place to go <laughs> so uh the first three months i actually stayed hidden in my sister's girls dorm at bowden college <laughs> so uh uh it was pretty interesting and uh she figured that she had to do something with me with regards to you know where am i going to go from here so she took my call my uh, high school transcripts to brunswick high school and um had them you know she translated the, the transcripts for them or they had them translated i don't really uh, really remember uh all i remember is they they accepted me as a exchange student even though i was american citizen because my english was horrible I mean, my English was really bad. And, uh, and basically, I ended up going to Brunswick High School as a senior, as an exchange student, even though I had already graduated high school in Portugal. And uh, I remember I had to take U.S. history. I had to take uh, uh, English. I took a French for fun. I took math. Um, and I've always been really strong in math, so I had a, a, a really good time in that. And um, and just ended up graduating with Brunswick High School in 1985. Actually, I should say 1986 because I came to the United States in 85. And how was that that experience, you know, first year in America compared to, you know, like going to Portugal from Angola? What, how did you feel about America at that time? Wow. It was that year. Uh, every. Even now, I look back at that year, and it was probably between that summer that I spent in Denmark and that year in high school as an exchange student, it was probably the biggest blast of my life. I mean, I had, it was everything I had ever seen in every American movie because it was really that the lockers, the school bus the doorbells ringing everybody walking down the down the hall with the you know high-fiving each other in the football team and which by the way i tried and i i quickly got kicked out because the coach found out that i was that i smoked and i didn't know i could smoke i couldn't smoke in when i play sports in high school so i ended up playing rugby for bowden college which again things happen for a reason and i loved it there but um but it, it I, I that that year was just until today. I still have very very good friends in uh, in Brunswick and in. So at the third month, remember I said I spent the first three months at my sister's dorm. You know, it got to a point where she got really skittish. She was really freaking out that I was staying there. So um, I came up with this little uh, plan of just going to my teachers at Brunswick. And uh, and asking if they could uh, ask the students if they could, would ask their families if anybody would be interesting in interested in hosting an exchange student in their house. And um, by the next week, by the week after I asked that, or the teachers asked that, I literally had a a list like with twenty names of people that were wanted to host me in their house as their exchange student. So I basically just picked the family I wanted to live with. And uh, until today, they're great friends and I stay in touch with them and really amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So tell us about the next chapter, how you, how you made it to the U.S. Navy. Okay. 
So graduated high school. My sister graduated Bowdoin College the same year. Now, you got to remember, my sister was actually born in Angola when my dad was doing his time in Angola. So she's not an American citizen, but she's got a degree from a U.S. university. So she wants to stay in the United States. So I'm her ticket. So she's like, I wanted to stay in Brunswick. I was having a grand old time. And she's like, please come with me to Boston. It's where I need to get a job. It's a big city. I've got a biology degree. That's the perfect start for me. Please, please, please. So many times she asked, I ended up caving in. So she was a, a part of Zeta Psi fraternity. So we went to Boston, to MIT, to Zeta Psi fraternity, and we stayed at the dorms right there in Cambridge. And um, she starts looking around for jobs, and I start looking around for jobs. And I start, you know, got a job at Fanny Hall at Boston Main and Fish Company, got a job at Ames Plowns Tavern, also down at Fanny Hall. Uh, I was working at the airport as a translator between Porskis and English at the port at the top airlines. I, I had like three or four jobs. And uh, and every time I would go back to the dorms, to the Zeta Psi fraternity house dorms, you know, my sister would be in a corner crying. She couldn't get a job. And, you know, and this went on for like two months and until the day that I basically got back to the dorms and she's got this smile radiant smile from year to year and i'm like okay what's going on and she's like i got a job and i'm like that is great okay what job did you get he's like well uh mom got me a job and i'm starting to pack uh we are leaving and i remember that distinctively because she said we are leaving and i look at her kind of like what do you mean we are leaving i was like well the job is in portugal he's like Oh, okay. Well, it looks like you are leaving. I'm not going anywhere. So, uh, so she packed up and left. And uh, within a week or two, the school was starting again. So all the kids were coming back. So I lost my ability to stay at the dorms. So I spoke with some of the kids that I was working with. And uh, I still remember the kid's name, Patricio Calderon from Ecuador, who's a worker from uh from Boston Main and Fish Company. And um basically I moved in with him and he was Patricio, his brother, his cousin, and I in one room, and his girlfriend and her mom on a different room. And we were living living and I still remember the address, 1355 Commonwealth Avenue in Alston. And I moved in with him and I remember sitting in that room in, in realizing that I had no life, that all I did was work just to pay my bills. And, and I started looking back at my roots being Portuguese and sailing has always been in our blood. And when I was there in Boston, you know, there's so many tall ships and I really had this calling of just just finding one of these tall ships and jumping you know just going in as a midshipman and just traveling to sea just go go and see the ocean and just go see the world and uh so every sunday you know for for those of us that remember we're talking maybe an inch high newspaper on sundays for <laughs> with advertisements and uh every sunday i would get that newspaper and i would keep looking for where is that tall ship looking for sailors that I can go on? And in one, one day, there he was. 
Are you young, adventurous, want to see the world? Dial this number. And I, I grabbed my, grabbed the phone, called the number. And on the other side of the phone, I hear this guy going, United States Department of the Navy. Oh, can I help you, sir? Oh, ma'am, this is not a secure line. And I paused and I thought about what he had just said. And he dawned on me, holy crap, this is the military. And I very, very subtly and very gently just put the phone right back down and hung up on the guy. And, and I was like, holy crap, there's absolutely no way. So a couple more days go by. I'm going back to work, the same story. And so I'm dating this girl. And one day we, we you know, again, it's only been a few days. I'm watching a movie with her. Richard Gere, officer and a gentleman. And I start watching a movie and I realize this guy's in the Navy. I like the uniform. Look at that. All these girls in this town really like what he does, you know, and he's like, they all want to marry him and everything because, you know, it's a pretty popular thing. It's like, where's that phone number? <laughs> so I went back to look, to look for the newspaper, found the newspaper and called the guy again. S same spill, you know, non-secure line. How can I help you, sir or ma'am? So this time I spoke and I go, hey, uh, what do I need to do to join the Navy? And I mean, like, like right away, they zoned on me and they're like, well, you got to be a U.S. citizen. I mean, that's how bad my English was. I mean, you really was bad. So I'm like, well, here I have, I have my birth certificate born in St. Paul, Minnesota. What's next? And these guys looking, he's like, he's like, well, you got to be uh, you got to have a U.S. high school diploma. And I'm like, look, <laughs> it's in a binder, still crisp. I haven't even touched it. Just got it right here. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy goes, okay, well, you got to take a, an English test. Okay, where do I go? And um, I'm trying to remember the name of the station. Oh, I just spoke about this recently. So anyway, I went to take the test and I, I passed the test. I mean, written Anything in writing has always been my forte. You know, I've never had trouble writing. It was always the speaking part um, because, you know, you go to school in, in Europe, you learn British, you learn how to read and write. It's the English, the, the speaking part that always comes comes later and, and it's harder. So um, so I passed the test and a guy kind of looks at me, shrugs his shoulders, say, OK, well, now you got to take this other test and and we'll be able to tell you what kind of job you can do. So I, in my mind, I'm like, okay, whatever, whatever, I'll just do that. So he, of course it was the ASVAB. Uh, I don't know, Phil, Phil, if you're familiar, you know, when you go enlisted, you take the ASVAB, when you go as an officer, you know, you, you, different, different process. But in my mind, I'm Richard Gear. So, you know, this was not in the script. So I took, so I took the test. I remember there being there forever. I mean, I just, it was like, a, I don't remember how many hours, but it was a long test and he really covers every aspect of life. And, and at the end, the guy comes back to me and I still clear, remember this clear as day, these old printers, they have the little perforated sides that, you know, you hear them as they're printing and this guy comes back and this thing has got to be like, I don't know, maybe 30 inch long, 30 inches long. And he's got all these jobs written. And he looks at me, he's like, 
he, he puts the paper down with this huge list of jobs. And he's like, you qualify for all these jobs, pick one. And I'm looking at him like, what? And in my mind, I'm just rewind, playback, rewind, playback. And I'm trying to see where did, where in the movie did Richard Gere pick out these jobs? And I just couldn't come up with it. And the guy's looking at me and I'm like, okay, okay. You know what? I, I don't care. You pick me a job. And this recruiter just looks at me kind of like completely baffled, like what? Okay. Okay. So he starts looking at the list and in my mind, I'm still rewinding a movie and playing it back. And I couldn't remember the job, but I remember palm trees. I remember, you know, sun and, and I, then I started thinking about all the movies that I watched when I was growing up in Portugal about United States and California and, you know, the beautiful beaches, the beautiful girls. And I'm like, ah, here's my condition. The job has got to be in California. And the guy's like, okay. So he looks at the list and he picks out this one job. And the job is sonar technician. And he looks at it and says, this is a great job. It's a sonar technician. You're going to be looking for submarines. The school for this job is in San Diego, California. So very likely they're going to send you to boot camp in California. Then you're going to go to the school in California. And then the second largest base in uh, Navy base in the United States is in San Diego. So if you say you want to stay there, 99% chances you get to stay in living in, in stay in California. And I'm like, okay. That works for me. So that was it. I saw I signed. I swore, swore in the flag and I did all my things. And then the guy says, OK, it's going to be a few months. You can go home. We'll call you. And, and then you'll go to boot camp. I said, OK. So I went. I went home and uh, I'll pause there for any questions. <laughs> no, San Diego is beautiful. <laughs> and, yes. then did you end, and you ended up going there then. Yeah. So, so basically I went back to, uh, my apartment with the, with the kids and everything. And he didn't even think about it. I didn't tell anybody what was going on. Two days later, I get a phone call two days later, I get a phone call and it's the recruiter. Your flight leaves tomorrow at midnight out of Logan. And I'm like, what happened to the, what happened to the three months? He's like, well, you're a minority. And, uh, we really uh, hurting for minorities. So you, you, your name, your name came up right away. So you're going right now. I'm like, okay. So here I am. Toothpaste, toothbrush, your razor, your clothes on your body, go to the airport. And, um, and, and I clearly remember getting to the airport. And as I'm walking through, through the gate, the, the gate of the airport, the security gate, I remember, holy crap, I didn't tell my mom or dad I joined the Navy. So here I am on a payphone at the airport, basically calling my mom because my parents eventually got divorced. So I had to call them separately. So I call my mom and, and getting this weepy voice on the other side when I told her that I joined the Navy and, you know, please be careful out there kind of thing. And then calling my dad and my dad got extremely upset, basically told me to get out of there to basically just go to college that I'm not going to do such a thing. And I was like, okay. Then I jumped in a plane 
went to boot camp and uh it was a rude awakening when I got to boot camp and I knew I was not Richard Gere and I knew I was not an officer and a gentleman because it was just, it was, it was rough. I was not prepared for that. Um, and, and, but, but, you know, it, it, it was, it was interesting. I remember getting in there. I remember being on this huge table and ironically, I just saw on the internet, because my son is thinking about going to the Air Force, I was kind of like reminiscing, looking at boot camp, and I saw this skit about the kids going into the Navy boot camp and, and how different things are, but how different they really are not, where when we get in, they sit us on this table, they literally hand us two pieces of paper in, two, in a pan and say, write to your parents, let them know you got here, okay? And analogous to today, where they just basically say, call your parents from your own cell phone, tell them you got here. Okay. Right. You get done with a call and you put the phone in a Ziploc bag. And that's the last time you're going to see your phone until you graduate boot camp. but uh, very analogous. And, um, and I still remember writing a letter to my parents, putting it in the mail in 20 days, almost to the date. I got both a letter from both of them at the same time. My mom, again, all weepy, crying, you know, just be careful out there. And my dad just, again, just cursing me out and just basically get out of there. You need to, you need to go to college and, and here's a check for your education. And this little paper just flew out of the envelope and that became my first car. <laughs> well done <laughs> well done Joseph <laughs> you know I didn't have the courage to tell him until I was I almost 40 years old <laughs> wow that's awesome but that was, that was my first car but um, <laughs> but then I went to boot camp I mean not boot camp I went to A school went into the ship and, and the Navy was not at all what I expected I honest truth it's 86, 87. Um, there's, there's a, the Navy then was not the Navy that, you know, now there was, I, I hate to say it. I mean, there was a lot of racism and, uh, me, my, my English was horrible. And the thing that I clearly remember until today, and again, things happen for a reason. And it marked me, but he also drove me to what I went on to do was, you know, I made E4 like right out of A school because I was in an advanced field and I was top in my class. I was top 10 at Brunswick High School when I graduated high school. Um, I mean, I've been always very good with academics. And the bottom line is I was treated like crap. And it was like go back to your country, you foreign F, you know, you don't belong here. Uh, they put me doing toilet duty all the time, even though there were a lot of junior people below me. Um, it, I was, it, it was miserable. I mean, it was literally miserable. And, um, and I remember we went on a Westpac maybe a couple months after I checked in on the ship. And when we came back, um, I was 
literally on the edge of just getting in a plane, going back to Portugal and never coming back to the United States because I was that, I just hated it. And, uh, and that's when my division officer, my SW division, division officer, who I reconnected probably about 10 years ago on Facebook, uh, Lieutenant Mark Mintz called me in his stateroom and, uh, and he had me sit down and he goes, Hey, uh, Jose, I was looking at your service record. You speak five foreign languages. You graduated top 10 in high school, top of your SW class. You are, so they had this program called the fat boy program. So I was the, I was the, the, the fitness guy that would take all the guys that they did not meet their physical fitness. I was the guy that would take them out to exercise, to get back into fitness. So he basically said, you know, you're the, the fitness coordinator, you know, but I can tell that you're not happy here on the ship. And, and I was like, you're, you're right, sir. I'm, I'm really don't like it here at all. And, uh, and he said, let me put something for you on the TV here. And he's little 13 inch monitor tube TV with a little VHS cassette. And he puts this VHS tape on and, uh, he said, I'll be, give me 30 minutes. I'll be right back. And he puts this tape playing and I start watching it. And I swear I was watching a Rambo movie. I mean, it's guys with green painted faces with an M60 on their waist with a M60 belt around their neck and shooting in the jungle or jumping out of airplanes and guys diving. And I mean, blowing up stuff. And I was like, this guy's putting a Rambo movie here. So he comes back. He's like, what do you think of that? I was like, that's great, sir. But I don't want to go in the army. He's like, that's not the army, son. That's the Navy. I was like, the Navy? These guys are jumping out of airplanes. How can you say that's the Navy? He's like, those are Navy SEALs. You ever heard of them? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, well, these are the Navy Special Forces. And if you would like to do that, I can help you do that. And I'm like, sure. You know, what I got to lose? <laughs> I hate being in the ship, so might as well. So um, literally within a few weeks, I had orders to go right across the street from 32nd Street over the bridge into Coronado and start SEAL training. And, uh, and that was the beginning of my, my SEAL career and uh, never looked back. Yeah, that's an amazing journey to get to Bud's. You know, I, I ask a lot of SEALs, right, Jose, how they got to Bud's, but that's far and away, you know, the most amazing story. So now... You get to Bud's, what, what class was it, 165? Oh, so I actually started in 162. Okay. And uh, I went through Hell Week with 162. And about day three or day four of Hell Week, I got pneumonia. And I, I, I saw the writing on the wall, and I saw it on every guy that was in my class. I mean, we, we started with about... My, my 162 class started with about 80-some students and ended up graduating from the original class. That same class ended up graduating with 14 of the original class. But in Hell Week, we had already lost over 32 students. And I was like, 
I am not going to be a statistic. I am not quitting. But I also knew that with pneumonia, literally every time I took a breath or tried to speak, like if a noise came out of my through my throat or scratched my throat, I would start coughing unc uncontrollably. And I had literally blood claws, just, just blood just coming out of my mouth. So I knew I had to keep my mouth shut the rest of the training, the rest of the, the rest of hell week. Yeah. But at the same time, as everybody knows, everywhere you go, you got to sing your cadence. You have to sing your cadence. There's no ifs, what's or, or buts about it. So literally from day four of hell week, I went through the end of hell week, lip syncing to every single song that we went through because I could not speak. So, but I had to look like I was singing. So I basically lip synced the whole time until graduated hell week, went to the dock, went to the infirmary and these guys just like, holy crap. And of course I was put in the hospital right away with, with pneumonia. Oh, and so then you end up rolling back into a later class to graduate? Right. right. Yeah. So the damage was so extensive that I ended up being two classes to completely heal. And this is in a period that we were having five classes a year. Yeah. So I ended up classing back up with class 165 because you got to remember, right after Hell Week, the, the event that we have immediately after is breath-holding underwater not tying breath holding so if you don't heal properly from pneumonia there's no way you're going to make it so anyway ended up rolling in 165 graduated 165 and um and then he goes to the the other part of my career again it it, 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 it almost seems like everything happens for a reason and here we go again the spokes person for my graduating class was um bill shepherd the astronaut yeah right and and when i saw bill shepherd and i learned that he was an astronaut i was, because space has always been my fascination i've always been sci-fi all all you know i'm all about sci-fi and space and when i found out that being a seal as an officer was a path to becoming an astronaut that became my new drive that became my new focus and in so that was part of it and the other thing that i also that also happened when i graduated was they asked you know what seal team do you want to go to and they say you know you have seal teams blah 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 and they of course they looked at me he's like oh you got to go to seal team four you speak spanish and i'm like okay here we go again and i went completely the other way and i said nope I don't want to go to South America because I speak Spanish. I don't want to go to Europe because I've been all over Europe already because I basically grew up there. I don't want to go to Africa because I've been there too. I want to go to East. I want to go to the Orient where I never been before. So I asked what teams go to Orient. They said STV team one and SEAL team one. And I'm like, okay, what's this STV thing? And they're like, well, these are, you know, Sealed delivery vehicle. They're basically mini submarines. You don't want to do that. These guys are spending lots of hours on the water. They're cold and they're basically, you know, just driving underwater wet. I'm like, that actually sounds like a lot of fun. 
And that's what I picked. That's what I decided to do. So I went into SDVs with the goal of getting my degree in engineering so that I could become an astronaut. I'll pause there. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about these STVs, you know, you know, like what they do, you know, and, and how the SEALs use them. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so STVs uh, are basically small, manned, wet submersibles. They're literally like, um, uh, like a, some type of underwater propulsion device that has a cockpit around it that basically carry, it helps you carry a payload, like uh, explosives, weapons, other swimmers, uh, while at the same time it's all enclosed, even though you're wet, it's all enclosed to prevent basically light from going outside and giving your position away. Because again, like like any good seal, all our missions are done at night because we like to be covert. You know, two things we always say: stay stay down at night where nobody sees you, in no bubbles, no troubles. So if they don't see bubbles on the surface of the water, then they don't know you're there. So um, so basically, these SDVs get uh, get placed in what we call uh, a hangar which is on the dry deck shelter. Dry deck shelter is, is basically a large uh, hangar and transfer, com, uh, uh, transfer chamber that get uh, uh, cinched down to the back of, a, of a, basically a host Navy submarine. And these Navy submarines basically go to different parts of the world where, uh, where the SEALs need to go. And uh, when they get within a certain range, they basically, they, uh, we, we get in through this transfer trunk in the dry deck shelter and we get inside these mini submarines and uh, we fill up with water and we equalize with sea and we open this door out to the ocean, kind of like a garage door. And uh, we drive these mini submarines out and we go and hit the beach where we least expect it. Uh, we bottom out these these little uh, these wet submarines and anchor them to the bottom, and then we get our gear on and we swim to the beach and we uh, go and do God's work. And then we just get back and whenever we're done with our mission, typically reconnaissance mission, rescue mission, that kind of it's those are the two main focuses of the SDVs. You'd get back into the mini submarine and go back out to sea, rendezvous again with the with a big navy submarine, and uh, go back in the in in the garage if you want to call it or the hangar, and go back into the submarine and get a nice hot shower and food and repeat. I I guess just pause for a second because like just think it blows my mind. I mean the submarines are enormous on the outside, but I mean it's cramped quarters inside, right? I mean I think most people couldn't handle just being in a submarine for a long period of time, let alone you know a mini sub going back and forth on the outside of the submarine, right? Underwater, cold in the water, running missions in the dark. 
Uh, I mean, at this time, like if you're if you're in the back, like what are the seals doing in the back of the mini subs? Because you can't see much, right? And you try uh -huh. to just keep your air in your mouth and not fall asleep. Well, luckily, I was a pilot or a navigator, so I didn't yeah. really have to <laughs> to worry too much about being in the back. But the guys in the back usually try to keep their mind off things and just just try to honestly. And and this is something that people just get almost in shock when I tell them this. Try to go to sleep. Underwater, wet, you can actually, you become so used to being underwater that you actually, you can, you know exactly what position you can be in so that you have the right, that second stage, that regulator is at the exact position where you can fall asleep and you have just the right force for the air to leave and you not to take water in and sleep underwater, <laughs> which is, it's a skill. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Right. You got to learn that. I mean, that thing falls out. You wake up like you're drowning. Oh yes. I can imagine the guys taping it to their mouths. I mean, it's just the whole experience, you know, uh, is just, is just mind blowing, you know, but, uh, it sounds like you enjoyed your time. Uh, oh, I loved it. yeah. Yeah. Well, I absolutely and, loved it. And, and part of what, why you mentioned choosing this path was traveling, you know, to a different part of the world. What, how, how was that experience? Oh, it was, it was again, amazing. I, I, so I was my first, one of our, my first stops was actually Mombasa, Kenya. So back in Africa wow. and, uh, and, uh, and I still remember because, so when, one of the things I skipped, I didn't talk about, I actually lived, for for a period in uh in um ah oh, in Mozambique I'm trying to remember that in Johannesburg Johannesburg uh Mozambique not Johannesburg um Johannesburg's in South Africa yeah yeah that's South Africa what's the name of oh my goodness I don't remember the name of the town I was a kid but I lived in a <clears throat> in Mozambique for for about a year. And, uh, and I still remember when we got to Mombasa, Kenya, me calling my mom and then again, my, of course, my dad and kind of like, guess where I'm at? And uh, I'm in Mombasa, Kenya. But guess what is even bigger than that? I've just gone around the world because literally I, I finished going circumnavigating the world, going to the same latitude. What is it? Latitude or longitude? These latitude, latitude from the perspective of here I am back again on the east coast of Africa, where I've been before and I've gone all the way around the earth one way. And um, that was that was a pretty unique experience doing that. But um, but, you know, been Philippines, Australia, Pango Pago, Thailand, uh, I mean, so many, so many amazing experiences. I definitely do not regret, you know, the choice that I made of, of, of going to, uh, to the Orient instead of going back to, uh, to uh, Europe and in Africa or South America. So that was, that was very, very cool. I thought. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So you're, so now listen, you're a Navy SEAL. You've been doing that for a while, but you're still dreaming about being an astronaut like uh, Bill Shepard, who for our listeners was the first Navy SEAL to, uh, to go to NASA, right. And become an right. astronaut L later. 
there's there's been two others uh, since then. Chris Cassidy and Johnny yep. Kim been able Correct. to go. Correct. Um, you know, so tell us about that journey. So uh, so now I'm a SEAL. I know I've got. I know what I have to do to become an astronaut, and that is, I need to get a technical degree, and I need to be stellar. I mean, I need to get my commission. I need to be stellar to be able to be selected to get my commission. And that's what I did. I mean, I volunteered for everything. I went to college and start, you know, literally acing every single class that I would take. Um, took, started with my uh, pre-engineering classes, got my uh, associate's degree in pre-engineering, applied for the, my commissioning program. I actually, for my associate's degree, I got valedictorian for my, my university, 4.0 GPA, um, applied for my commission in, in, in to get my, my degree in mechanical engineering. I, I was picked up, I was accepted. Um, I was going to go to uh, my offshore end dock, which is um, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island for offshore commissioning in the summer. And um, I went to do my physical and in the physical, they found some, some abnormality on my, uh, on my urine test. And uh, basically I had some very high levels of red blood cells and protein in my urine. And, um, and I, I try to convince them, you know, I work out a lot. So it's probably from that. And they, they didn't buy it. They, took me to Balboa hospital. They did a number of other tests and, uh, ended up doing a kidney biopsy and basically came to the conclusion that, uh, um, I had contracted, uh, an autoimmune condition that basically affected my, uh, my whole autoimmune condition and my kidneys. And, uh, basically that team that basically disqualified me to get my Navy commission. And, um, and while I was waiting for the medical board to even give me my decision on whether I could get my commission or not, I was already thinking of all the other ramifications, you know, what does this mean for me to be a SEAL and what does this mean for me as, you know, in general in the Navy. And, and it was literally like, you know, first news, you cannot get your commission a week later you cannot be a seal. And then a week later, we medically boarding you out. You're no longer fit to be in the Navy. And, um, and just like that, from being on top of the world, I was, uh, literally, uh, probably the worst year of my life. Just, uh, left out, no place to go, no family in the United States. Um, didn't know what to do. And, uh, just, out on the street <laughs> yeah devastating i mean just i mean I, you've told me the story a few times before but it's just devastating to listen to but i always know you're very resilient and you'll never quit right you'll, you'll you know you're never out of the fight so to speak right so so tell us what you did how did you sort of pick yourself up and keep moving forward i guess like you did in buds right you just never yeah. quit yep yep so um um, it, it wasn't right away. It, it, it took a, a, a almost, almost a year before I snapped out of it. 
and and found a new course of action or a new purpose in life and uh and and basically what i said to myself is you know here i am i graduated valedictorian i've got this amazing ability of of being an engineer and what am i going to do with it so i'm my decision was you know i'm just going to finish the the year that i have left in college i'm going to get my finish my degree in mechanical engineering and i'm going back in the navy and i'm going to do exactly what you know what i know i can do which is not only drive these sdvs i'm going to make them better than anybody has ever made them before so uh went back to college graduated got my mechanical engineering degree and applied to work for NAFC and um <laughs> and this is another irony i applied to work for the naval undersea warfare center understanding or believing that because it's the naval undersea warfare center that these are the guys that build the sdvs and uh and i got hired right away and the naval undersea warfare center is in newport in rhode island and uh, I remember walking in, very gullible, very enthusiastic, young engineer, a lot of fire in the gut, ready to go and do what I had not finished doing with the SEALs. And I started looking for the SDVs. And uh, some guy asked me, uh, what are you looking for? And I was like, yeah, I'm looking for these SDVs. And, like, and they're looking at me like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, these mini submarines that the special forces drive in. He's like, oh yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. That's a, that's a different command that is in Panama city in Florida. Yeah. We, we do something completely different here. We, uh, we focus on, you know, unmanned vehicles and we focus on, you know, uh, uh, fire control systems for the big Navy submarines. And that was of course, a big letdown, but again, got my head up and I said, you know what, if this wasn't the right place, there was a purpose. I'm going to just keep going to school. So I went to URI. I got my master's degree in mechanical engineering and with a focus in material science and titanium alloys. And I started trying to be the best engineer I could be. And uh, I started doing a lot of finite element modeling, shock and vibration analysis, underwater explosives and analysis of, you know, plasticity and deformation and vibration of, of uh, materials underwater. And to the point where I was actually presenting at symposiums. And, uh, and by 2004, um, I had already finished my degree, my, my master's degree. And, uh, and I was actually called by uh, um uh, Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, right there in New in Maine, border New uh, New Hampshire in Maine, and uh, they wanted me to go and work for them to be the lead engineer for the what they call the ASDS, the Advanced Seal Delivery System, which is basically uh, the first dry manned seal submarine. And um, at the time, I I was I wasn't too sure. And I was going through some situation with my family and, and I wasn't able to take that job, but that was my sign that, that I had to basically go back to the community 
and uh, that I had the, the requirements I needed. I had the knowledge I needed and the uh, professional uh, uh, knowledge that I needed to go back and help with the SEAL community. So I started working my way back gradually. And, uh, and here in the past five years, uh, I was called up and, uh, by U.S. SOCOM. Uh, so for those that don't know, U.S. SOCOM, United States Special Operations Command, by their acquisition uh, office that uh, basically is the program office that uh, is responsible for all the new uh, undersea systems for the SEALs. And uh, they basically asked me if I would be interested in working in their program office and being the test director for the dry combat submersible, which is basically the same thing for, uh, for the SEALs, but, you know, mini submarine, but it's a dry submersible. And that's what I do right now. It's amazing, Jose. Just amazing. I mean, all the stuff that you've pushed through, it's a, just a great story and perseverance. And, you know, you've been so successful that had all these ups and downs, right? Uh, all the way through it, uh, really. It's uh, very, very inspirational. Dave, I'm sure you agree. Absolutely. Did, at this point in time, do your parents agree? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny you say that because... You know, you remember that story I said at the beginning, you know, my dad always yeah. said, you got to get out of there, go to college, get out of there, go to college. Now he's like, my dad's got pictures of me as a Navy SEAL and, and he's, you know, he's always talking about me and what I did and everything. So did, uh, did, he, did he ever show, share with him a photo of your first car? <laughs> he, I, I never gave him a picture of that first car because I don't think he would have approved, but I told him what he was. And yeah, yeah he, he, he just kind of gave me a stare and then he laughed <laughs> about it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It was awesome. Awesome story. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just a couple of things. So um, just some of the things you're working on, you know, today. Uh, in life, and also, would you recommend uh, you know military service for a young person today? Yeah, well, so so again, right now I'm working at SOCOM. Um, I'm I'm 54 years old. I'm I'm really looking at my next chapter. To be honest with you, um, the medical condition that. I inherited from the Navy has not been good to me. So, um, it's, a it's, um, it's a lifelong medical condition. So my kidneys keep deteriorating, um, about a year, a year and a half ago, my kidney function was down to 28%. So I was starting to see things a little, uh, not, not, not so positively. And, um, I decided to, uh, basically see if I could take things into my own hands, which, which I had before I had, my kidney function was being, was really bad in, in 98. And I did some research and found out that through a selective tonsillectomy, I could reduce my false positive incidents, which that damaged my kidneys and, and was able to extend my 
my health, my kidney health through, um, like I said, last year, 2020, um, 2021 actually. And, uh, so I started doing some research again and, and really came, the only thing I could find is, you know, try to, instead of addressing the symptoms, try to address the cause, which is, you know, health of your immune system and, and of your body. And I've been on this, um, uh, basically supplements, herbal supplements. Um, and, and ironically, I have actually been able to raise my kidney function from 28% to 48% as of last month, uh, using Amazing. these herbal supplements. And, uh, and, and it's actually due to programs like you guys support that I'm able to do this because, it's extremely expensive. These things are like $1,500 a month, which is, there's no way on my government pay that I can pay for this. And it's, uh, through contributions of, you know, uh, um, veteran organizations that I'm able, being able to pay for it. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask next. Are you getting the help that you need both, you know, privately through the VA from organizations, um, you know, as yeah. Phil mentioned earlier, that's that's part of the realm that, well, we both work in in different angles on, right. on, help, on helping veterans. Yeah, the, the the VA right away, it's not FDA, FDA approved. They're not going to touch it. So uh, the only resource I had was through veterans groups. And uh, in, in uh, I, I, I didn't feel right at the beginning. So I took the first six months, I kind of went on, on a limb to see if this was really something that would really show results before I asked anybody for help. I didn't want to put somebody, you know, get somebody to pay for my, my own, you know, uh, experiments. And, um, and when I started getting the results, I reached out to, uh, the Navy SEAL foundation, uh, they, they, pointed me in the path of what they call the warrior coalition, which is basically a group that they, uh, they specialize in situations like this. And then they have a, a, a wide broad, you know, breadth of, of organizations that they work with. And then it's, it's strictly who is willing to help. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's, it's not a good feeling. I mean, it's, I feel like every two, three months when the bank goes back, when the bank account goes back down, that I have to go and ask again for, you know, for them to solicit and see who's out there willing to help. But the fact of the matter is they've been coming through so far. So it's, it's working, but, uh, but I am, you know, professionally, I'm starting to, you know, that this whole kidney situation and the whole ups and downs in my career, it's taking a toll and I'm kind of looking forward to, uh, to get to a point where I can, I can have a little more, uh, flexibility and do a little more with the family and, and, uh, I guess start a new chapter in my life. Be able to relax a little. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, thank you. Thank you for sharing. 
Well, going yeah, back to Africa, he's on, on the bucket. I already yeah. told I already told Phil, see if I can take my uh my lovely and beautiful wife down to South Africa one day and Phil, Phil knows Phil knows that's on my bucket list too. I haven't yeah. been and I would I would love to go. It's on my uh I love traveling uh, like like you and I, I was a military brat myself. My father loved traveling and that's on my bucket list of places I haven't been and and would would love to visit and maybe when when we all connect at uh, swim with a mission we'll have to plan some travel <laughs> hey you got to put portugal on your list if you're going to put africa you got to put africa you got if you're going to put south africa you got to put portugal in there too i i've been i love portugal okay was, okay yeah yeah i love it that's where i mentioned i've been well lisbon and, and fatima and fatima uh, yeah yeah and traveled to spain but yeah that's where i was mentioning it's beautiful beautiful country but but yeah. it's been a while it's been about 20 years we're i'm a couple of years older than you i think you <laughs> mentioned you're 54 i'm 56 so okay so okay phil, phil you're the young one in in our crew here i think he's not my age. much now i'm 54 as well yeah, yeah. but i'm yeah. a lot better looking than jose <laughs> he is <Yeah. laughs> at least um, better preserved phil, phil wears it better than us exactly Exactly. Yeah, no, but Jose, I got to say, uh, I hadn't, you, you hadn't given me an update on how well your kidneys have responded. Uh, so that was probably the best news I've had, but I'm not surprised with you because you always find a way, you know, um, and you're so resilient and so strong. So, you know, I'm really just so impressed and, and also grateful that you shared us, your story, you know, with us, this, was was phenomenal probably one of the best podcasts we've ever done and you know we could probably do another two hours with you totally, but I think, totally. I think the time, we'll the time is, flew. yeah we'll <laughs> let you write your next chapter jose and then come back on uh I like again, it you know? but uh i want to thank you for your service thank you you are you are a great man and uh we're lucky to have you and I am looking forward to seeing you in a few uh, in a few here coming up to some of the mission, but thank you for joining the podcast with us today. Absolutely. And I, I look forward to seeing everybody there, myself and Wally, and we're going to bring all the kids, not all the kids. We're going to bring Henry. We're going to bring Tiffany. Uh, so uh, going to watch a Red Sox game playing the Yankees. I think it's going to be quite the, quite the game. So uh, it's going to be for my son's birthday. So, Really excited about it, and and I really it, it's one of the things, and, and and I don't say this just for saying. Wally and I have have a very special place in our heart with you guys from New Hampshire. All the all the fundraising activities that we ever been to. If there's one place we almost we always feel like home, and it's like being around families around you guys, and and that's and, and I'm not being light about that. I'm you guys are really awesome and uh yeah. lo really look forward to going there and and as i as we plan on you know toning down career wise it, new hampshire will definitely be one of the places i i will always treasure and want to go and visit and, and see you guys down there no, i appreciate that thank you jose really appreciate it dave will give you the last word just say we're we're just so honored to have you with us on on Homeland Heroes Salute and and can't wait to see you up at uh, Newfound Lake. Hmm. Thank Very you. Very good. Thank you guys.
take care and I'll see you, see you guys here in a few weeks. This podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. And Dairy Cam, who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the uniformed services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim with a Mission, Harbor Care, Veterans First, or any other organization.